Hello, Protocols Backends and Programs. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day, created by the big compiler companies to sell more code. So whether you declare your love as constant or variable, I hope you find your type. And regardless of what language you choose, keep them safe in your memory. Which means this week, we chat with Nick Selby from Trail of Bits about the common mistakes that mature companies make in the cloud and if that wasn't enough of a security topic already, what safe AI needs. In the news segment, Reddit's breach, OpenSSL Vulns taking over a supplier's network, the top 10 web hacking techniques of last year, the cryptography in tiny IoT for next year, and more. Compile a poem and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Passbolt is a free and open source password manager that allows your team to store, organize, and share passwords securely. Passbolt is privacy first and highly versatile. It can be installed on-prem behind your firewall, used in a secure cloud, or deployed as a cloud-native application. You can check out the source code on GitHub, extend it with the REST API, integrate it with the CLI or SDKs, and even contribute. Get started with Passbolt for free now. Check it out at securityweekly.com slash Passbolt. This is episode 229, recorded February 13th, 2023. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella. Hello, John. Mike, I haven't even gotten my Super Bowl commercial jokes out yet. You're already moving on to the Valentine's Day? Come on now. Hey, we got to start. We're also going to do an acapella rendering of Diamonds later. So um, <laughs> hopefully you're paying attention to halftime. Because I'm also here with Akira. Hello, Akira. Hi, Mike. I'm very happy to report that I have indeed found my type, so it's a good Valentine's Day for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. And um, as I said, we'll be doing the Rihanna uh, cover at the end of the show. Uh, but in that case, if you have other suggestions or topics that you want us to cover, dear listeners, submit them to securityweekly.com slash guests. We review them monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. An accomplished information and physical security professional, Nick leads the software assurance division of Trail of Bits, giving customers in some of the world's most targeted industries a comprehensive understanding of their security landscape, technology, and infrastructure. Hello, Nick. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I'm sort of listening to the words from LinkedIn and really regretting a lot of them. <laughs> Well, I think um, I think we might even be able to tie that later into as a callback later into our our, our discussion here. Let's see if we can do that because okay. the first thing we we wanted to get into was some of the work you've done in in the cloud or have been doing in the cloud and what 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 mistakes people make. So, trail of bits just to, maybe to set you up a little bit for our listeners that very well known in consulting, very well known in going after classes of vulns. I think I, I I love that rather than just say we're going to give you the list of the individual bugs, go fix the bugs. That's not your approach. Your approach is fundamental problems in cryptocurrency and smart contracts and software and the cloud as well. And so we're, you're here to talk about the cloud. So why don't I stop talking and you maybe introduce a little bit of what you, um, some research that's coming out soon about your your work in the cloud. Well, I really actually like the way you 
the way you introduced us, that was that was just great. And I, yeah, I think that all too often people will get an audit report back from us and they'll be like, okay, let's look at those bugs that you found and let's get after that. Actually, the most valuable thing that we give is is called our, our, our code maturity index. And, and that is really where we take a look at, okay, we found these bugs. That's fine that we found them. Here's how to avoid making bugs like that in the future. And here's how to... to up your maturity across 10 different categories uh, of software development, which is just, it's so much more useful, I think, than, than just here, fix this. Here, here's yes, a list absolutely. of things. Um, Alex Useche, who's our uh, engineering director for our cloud native practice within our application security team, uh, he's, been, he's been spending a lot of time uh, doing cloud native threat modeling and cloud native uh, application audits for some of the you know, household names, uh, some of the most mature companies in the business. And what we, the reason that we were going and taking a retrospective look back on the, the past year is, you know, from uh, from my time in the analyst world, I remembered everybody wants to make predictions about what's coming down the road. And, and we realized that, in fact, we've got some evidence because our our customer base tends to be, as I say, they're very mature uh, which means that they're kind of at the leading edge of of cloud adoption. They're very mature mm-hmm. in terms of their their real adoption of agility as a cultural uh, matter. You know, they're not just like, "Hey, I'm in the cloud. Where's my agility?" They're they're really they they take it uh, very very seriously. They they've done a lot of work on their software development lifecycle on their CI/CD, and they are they're especially good at setting forth simple code, well-documented code, code that declares exactly what it is that it is trying to do in each section and gives advice about the security guarantees that that it, it wishes to establish. And so it's really easy to follow, even though it, it can be very complex. And they also have incredibly strong testing regimes and testing regimens so that they move beyond you know, unit testing and sort of static vulnerability analysis, but into more specialized static analysis, into, into dynamic analysis and fuzzing their applications. And then a very strong culture of testing, whether it's you know, somebody, somebody who's doing formal verification or whether they're doing uh, code audit the way, the way Trail of Bits does, that this is built in. And, so, and the whole point is to, to build just like we have layers of security we also have layers of testing, layers of discipline and culture to catch problems before they get to staging, let alone into production. Now, if, I, oh, go yeah, ahead. I was going to say, I, I worry, though, that I, I, I interrupted you as possibly you were building up no, to no. this because you're giving us a great setup for this is what mature companies look like. And I love the focus, as you said, code comments, actually explainable code, understandable yeah. code. But I'm going to guess that you still find some problems. So regardless of this maturity, <laughs> we, of course we do. And and you know, developers are human, and everybody wants to take shortcuts, and everybody wants to get to the cool stuff, and nobody likes nobody likes the boring stuff. And frankly, making new exciting features in new exciting technologies is really fun. And documenting it, and uh, paying down technical debt, and all the other things that those things are not fun. And so people try to maximize the first and minimize the second. Of course, we see that. I guess the 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 real difference is that we know that if we're seeing our customers now making mm-hmm. mistakes uh, commonly across all of them, then we know that in a year, the sort of more more advanced companies that might not be as as mature as these guys, they'll start making them. And over the next couple of years, it's going to filter down into the entire environment because these are the things that if if they're this disciplined and this good at it and they're still making mistakes, this is a mistake that has legs. And so we can look at this as an evidence-based prediction of what's coming down the road. So 
Uh, as I mentioned, Alex Vucetche is coming up with a blog post about this, and it's going to be really interesting, the top five uh, findings. So before I go on, let me just say what we're talking about. So cloud native, we're only talking about cloud native uh, services and okay. applications that are designed specifically to run in cloud infrastructure. Um Often it's like Kubernetes and uh, containerization, application mesh technology, stuff like that. And these are typically run as microservices uh, that are independently owned throughout the organization by different groups or making different micro microservices. So that's, that's the scope of what we're talking about. Here's what I f we find. <laughs> we find this universally uh, surprising. It's in the cloud, so it's secure, is still <laughs> there. <laughs> like, really? Is, oh. It is... Amazing to me that this is something that you know everybody has been saying you shouldn't be thinking for at least ten years. I was I was joking in the pre-call like since we were having the argument of, about cloud adoption and opex versus capex, this has been an argument. Like you know, well, it's in the cloud, so it's insecure. It's in the cloud, so it's secure. That really is a pervasive thing that people still believe that. And and there's more dangerous dogma. Uh, the the I think among the most dangerous is it's Kubernetes, and so it defaults to secure right out of the tin. I think that that's a, a huge problem that still people have challenges believing. Um, and it's in a container, so our code is reproducible. Uh, it's sort of like, well, I can send you my, I can send you this containerized application, and you can run it. Therefore, our code is great. Well, no, <laughs> it's really not a guarantee of anything. So. Um, I do want to also mention before I tell you about these mistakes, because some of them are funny, um, pe people want to develop cloud native applications. And we think that it's very exciting because mm -hmm. you can do so many things. Uh, you, you can stretch the boundaries of what is possible. You can also do that while spending about 1% of what somebody would have had to spend about 20 years ago to build a similar application, a similar set of functionality. Um, the, on the downside, if you make a mistake in the cloud, you do it really quickly, and the consequences can be rather significant rather fast. So you want to get this done right. Um, we look at our job as... Um, telling you where the risks are to enable you to take more risks, enable you to understand what the risks are, see how they affect you, see where the hazards are in your code base so that you can take advantage of these new technologies. That's, that's what we look as our, as our prime, um, uh, you know, our prime purpose of, of what we do. So that's uh, interesting because yeah, that, that, that leads me to think of this uh, from the perspective of this is security as an enabler for the business rather yes. than you're not describing, we look at your risks and tell you where more risks are. So you add more controls, become less risky, add less features, fewer features, do, do fewer things and, and so on. So I, I love this approach. I wanted to pull apart a little bit of the idea of like, okay, Kubernetes isn't secure out of the box. Um, <laughs> that seems, uh, unfortunately, too much software just isn't secure out of the box, yeah. it, it feels. And, and, and what maybe frustrates me, I'm not sure what, what word to use there is that surprises me perhaps is that that's also the case for mature companies as well as you were describing I'm yeah. curious was there an aspect of this list or was you're looking at companies that also surprised you that you just didn't expect to see or not see for that matter from from their practices I, I guess the thing that really surprises me is that no matter how good you are you're still making mistakes that are kind of just classic chestnuts from the information security space you know <laughs> segregate things and <laughs> encrypt things and and just really really looking at at far less sexy uh far less exotic 
kinds of uh, vulnerabilities and, and mistakes that you can make and into some really pedestrian things that have always been the case. And and so it's, you know, just because it's cloud native doesn't mean that you're uh, smarter. Uh, we were talking also about like memory safe languages because you're using a memory safe language doesn't make your code safe. It just makes it harder to make mistakes. Um, but, you know, it, the mistakes are still possible. I, I think that the biggest surprise that I had was that um, we did not see in in our big in our in our look none of the top 5 was hard coding credentials into the code base oh, nice now That's- i've seen that in a lot of places that are less mature than uh, than our customers uh, i've seen that in incident responses i've seen that in in consulting you know and just looking at different code bases but uh it did surprise me because it's so common that people actually hard code credentials or hard code secrets into their code I would have expected that still, but um, I, I will say that the 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 top two because I can't go into all five right now, but the top two, the the first one won't surprise anybody really. It's it's insufficient or missing access controls, um, putting too much of your trust in Kubernetes or in uh, EKS AKS, like the, the you know well it's I'm using the Azure Kubernetes service, therefore it's fine. No, it it really isn't, and. Um, we're we're still looking at apps that are enforcing authentication controls at the perimeters, but they're still failing to apply principles oh. of zero trust throughout throughout the the cloud infrastructure, and that's still a big problem. Even if you are uh, a mature company, it's a kind of we we sort of default to it because it's easier while you're doing that's that I think that that falls into the category of boring stuff that that people don't want to deal with. They just want to get on and make the cool app. We've got um, a story coming up in the news. Excuse me. Um, And not directly related to what you're just saying. Well, sort of related. Um, The cloud providers, the amount of API endpoints they have, or not endpoints, but the amount of APIs they have is just like skyrocketing as they have more and more functionality. You know, if I think about setting permissions for a role in Kubernetes, my eyes start rolling back in my head. Do you think, is it partially that same thing? It's so complex that like, um, I mean, it gives you a ton of power and flexibility, but on the other side... You got to control the beast. Yes, and I think that I, I, you know there there are certain I think um, expectations that people have in less mature companies about the the kind of secure by default claims. Um, and there, there's a couple of things to say there. The first one is that like secure to AWS or Azure is not the same as secure to your application. You know their yeah. their security is that their pipes are moving and stuff is moving back and forth in the pipes the way it's supposed to. That could mean that you're getting hacked seven ways from Sunday and everybody's stealing all your customers' data and all of your money. But AWS would be like, hey, look, packets are moving. That's great. <laughs> you know, it's and, and we, we know where it's coming from and where it's going. So that that's secure. So I think that separating what my security means as a as a developer versus their security, because AWS is not watching out for your app's security. They're watching out for the infrastructure security, which means that the infrastructure works as advertised. So that's I think a, a big thing. Um, uh, and I think a lot of times uh, that complexity that you mentioned with Kubernetes or really anything in the cloud, um, I, I think if you take a look at any any breach you've heard of in the past five years in the cloud was a misconfiguration of something foundational, which led to a either a lateral movement or a direct pop. That tells you that configuration is really tough, but it also tells you that people aren't using the tools that are available to test your configuration on a regular basis. Uh. 
it's really important and you can do that. And there's, there are free and open source tools. There are paid for tools and, and they're, they're all pretty good at highlighting these things. This should not be as hot a startup space as it is, but it is because people are just not paying attention. They just want somebody to fix it for them. That's surprising because what I, when you were descri- when you were describing your surprise against uh, not seeing hard coded credentials, my mind did go to a conjecture. Not sure I can support this necessarily, but you know, secrets management is yeah. a native part of AWS GCP, so it's it's just easier to do and use those tools. I would have thought that you know even Amazon is moving to the space of here. We're mm-hmm. going to tell you about some of your misconfigurations. Yeah, but um. It, Apparently, even as, as you said, even with the hot startup space, people just aren't. Is it not easy enough that's to to adopt this? It's there. It's too much complexity. What would you start to conjecture there? Point to is maybe still problems that we should be solving. I don't really. I don't really have evidence. I've got observations and anecdotes, but you know, then ah, this is infosec. All we need. Um, are yeah. anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I honestly think that that a lot of it comes down to. Um, Variance in uh, well, metaphor mapping and variance in expectations based on your role and responsibility. So your CTO and your CFO might be thrilled that you're moving into GCP. Um, your seat, you know, your your head of engineering or your head of development might think that he'd rather be in Azure or or AWS. But you know, okay, I'll take a look at what I've got here, and then by the time it filters down into into sprint goals and and you know what we're going to actually build, I think that a lot of people make assumptions that are based on in incomplete communication and incomplete understandings of the infrastructure in which they are attempting to operate. And, I think, and, and a lot of times it comes down to if security does not have a seat at the table from the ideation stage, then very few, if any, people are going to raise their hand and point these things out that the assumption... I mean, if I, if I bet you all a six-pack of Dr. Pepper right now that Kubernetes today will support TLS by default for interpod communication, I think that that would be a pretty safe bet to say, yeah, of course they do, and of course they don't. And that's shocking to everybody. Wait a minute, they don't? And, like, and everybody just kind of thinks that they do, and you need another thing, right? And, and unless you want to get into Istio wrangling, you're really not going to notice that. And the only person who's going to suggest it is either going to be a security guy or a, a compliance guy who wants logging and you know <laughs> some kind of proof that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah, no, I got. It's going to take me more than six bottles of Dr. Pepper to read through a thirty-page Harding <laughs> guide for Kubernetes, as it is right there. Um, but that's that's a rant for another day. Yes. So let's let's also expand from so insufficient missing access controls. You know, Kubernetes yep. isn't necessarily hardened out of the gate. What about um, so the software stack? The, we we do live in the world of S bombs. Are these yep. mature companies with S bombs? Because I think you mentioned reproducible builds too, which is actually non-trivial to get to. Yeah. So um, does this is, are, are these companies also benefiting from that as well? Or are they you know yes and no on that angle? Uh, yes and no. They're they're going towards it and and uh, salsa. The, what is it? Software levels for secure security levels for software artifacts like SLSA uh, dot dev. Really awesome way to test where you are and and where where you should be. Uh, again, it's a, one of those free standards. I think it came yep. from the folks at Google, yep. uh, which is a, this is how they do it, and it's it's really quite instructive. Um, the The second most common issue that we had was insecure or outdated dependencies. I mean, how is it possible? <laughs> um, well, I uh, again, I, I don't have much evidence on why it's possible. I can just say anecdotally, people don't seem to think of... <laughs> Ken Thompson said in in this 1984 paper, Reflections on Trusting Trust, that you should 
you can't trust code that you didn't totally create yourself. And everybody's like, oh yeah, that's true. And then they create their code and they have this forest of vulnerabilities and they're only looking at the code that they created and they're not thinking of the the, the vulnerabilities. This is a, uh, it's a surprisingly common conversation with a lot of companies that we talk to where they don't, either they, they've underestimated the importance or they've underestimated the difficulty of determining um software supply chain and i and i uh i think it's also really interesting like everybody's got a lot of moving excuse me everybody's got a lot of moving parts in their in their cloud native software and there's there's front end uis there's apis there's lambda functions there's all this stuff that's going on and 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 moving data and that all of that code all of this modern code has lists of dependencies and all of those dependencies themselves have nested dependencies all the way down to bare metal. And this is something that often isn't looked at or the way machines will uh, satisfy dependencies uh, is different. And so you end up with, you know, two machines which are, quote, the same, like, you know, I'm sure your staging and your production environment are exactly the same. Um, but but when you actually take a look at how these, these servers have, have resolved these dependencies, they could be radically different. Nobody's actually looking at that. They sort of run an S-bomb and they say, that's what we've got. That is not what you've got. It's it, it is actually probably scratching the surface. We released uh, a free and open source tool last year called uh, It Depends, which helps people do recursive um, re- recursive dependency uh, mapping, and so that you can actually see how this works on a per machine basis. But this is an area where I think people need a lot of help because it's it is really non trivial. It sounds like it's trivial, and and I love what Alan Friedman talks about with uh, you know the ingredients list. But it isn't as simple as an ingredients list. Uh, it's it's more like a bomb in a factory of how to make the ingredients, which is you know complicated. Um, I think that uh, if we also th- just think about the fact that developers often will only focus on their code again because that's the fun place to be. The list of things that are outside their direct control or even indirect control just grows every single day. And and I think that there, people have to recognize that. Yeah, I'm curious too, especially as you're looking at the. the I, I'm going to make a note here. We do, we should talk about the other end of the spectrum. What how how do companies that aren't necessarily mature approach this handle this? Yeah. But before we get there, I do have one quick question here on the the S bombs aspect. Now I am still a, a fan of them of the principles behind yeah. it. Yeah. But I'm curious too, as you look at these companies, and they see, you know, uh, you know, one thing that S bombs don't necessarily show is configuration issues. So yeah. that's good. Um, another thing, though, is just: do I start fixing all my dependency issue, every known vulnerability? Do I keep everything up to date on the very latest software package? I like the idea of doing that, but I'm curious if that actually translates into the real world with real engineers, with real products, and you know, not real delivery really. roadmaps. You know? <laughs> Not really, and not every day. And so it's really important yes. to, to get control over that. Um, just upla- uh, updating to the latest and greatest does not necessarily give you uh, the confidence. Look, you're, you're probably going to be a little bit better off. But I, I would say that if you're already going to that extent, then you should probably go a little bit farther and do it right. And then you won't be wasting any energy or duplicating effort when you find out that the thing you just installed last week needs to be installed now because the thing that was that was not covered in the last update but will be covered in the next one, blah, blah, blah. So I think that that's important. I, look, I, I I think that the way less mature companies can uh, can understand or or can can improve is by you know a problem well defined is a problem half solved. Like just really start 
the the process that so many people are talking about of, of generating SBOMs and taking a look at what you have. Enumeration is really step one. What do I have in my environment that I can tell right now? I can get better later. I can I can get much more granular later, but but even that first hit at a list is a it's a big step forward. And and so getting a sense of how big the problem is 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 the first step to solving it. Well maybe that's a great setup of saying, you know, how big is this problem? Let's talk about those organizations, those companies that aren't necessarily on that high mature end, they don't have millions, plural, or multi-millions budget of either security teams, let alone, you know, or engineers. How do they start to, you know, you've got five problems for for them to look at as they're going into the cloud. How do they start approaching this? Um, I I think you actually start at, at what it is that you're trying to do and start to describe what your software is supposed to be doing, what your application should be doing, and the expected behaviors and the required behaviors and start looking at it uh, from that, you know, the the standpoint of invariance or the standpoint of like what I I like to call the Soviet model, like that, which is not required is forbidden. And, and, and if you start to, if you can start to break down your code and find any place where it's difficult to follow your intent, any place where it's difficult to understand what it is that you're supposed to be doing here, what your, what your goal is, is to have a really good, solid sense of what you are saying the security of your system is, what you are counting on, and what you are counting on something else to do for you. And really separating those things out, I think, is, the, is probably the first step, if, you, if you've done nothing. Um, I think a lot of times people will, they'll do something like they'll run, you know, a, a great scanner like SNCC or something like that. And they'll be like, oh, okay, well, I've scanned it. I'm fine. And the answer is no, you've begun and you should use some of the things that you learn from that to, to, um, to be able to, to empower you to look for more things, but you shouldn't look at any, any test as, okay, I'm done. Everything you do should be a, a you know, a point in time snapshot uh, and, and you should get as close to continually understanding the health of your code as often as you can. So I'm wanted. To, I mentioned in, in the intro uh, about AI too. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's a bit of a, a hard turn we're going to make, and I'm trying to connect the two, the two topics. One is I will just say we we've been talking about cloud, been talking about the approaches to cloud, and you were talking about I think secure coding in so many words of simplified code that has documentation, code mm-hmm. comments, declaring environments, etc. Talking about testing, maybe we've got um last part of this interview. I'd like to talk about AI and ML because that's an area that you and Trail of Bits have been looking at as well. In, including the security of it. Now, I don't think mm-hmm. you have a top five list of mistakes no, yet. We could ask ChatGPT to uh, give us them in the style of Nick Selby and Trail of Bits, perhaps. But um, maybe <laughs> set us up. What are you actually looking at? Because if you notice, I'm struggling to even try to um, pull in some terminology here. We don't have that's like awesome. the, the AWS, the Azure But that's a, that's a great yes. place to start, right? And, and Dr. Heidi Kloff, who is our, um, she's our engineering director for, for machine learning and AI. And um, she's got her doctorates in formal verification she comes to us from the safety industry, like she worked on nuclear power plants to make sure that those are safe. And, and boy, you know, coming from the infosec world to talk to somebody who's actually saying, okay, we don't want to blow things up and kill people. It's like, it's a really, <laughs> it's a very grounded conversation. It's really great. And um, when, when, we, uh, when we hired her, it was with the understanding that ML, AI, they are at the absolute pinnacle of Mount Hype right now. They are the hottest things in the world. No one wants to hear 
unless they bring up the dreaded term Skynet. Nobody wants to talk about security in ML or AI. They're just like, hey, look how cool this is. Let me turn it on. And what what our argument really is as we're as we're standing up, the, you know, we have this new practice of, of machine learning and AI, and we're doing security for it, and, and and we're doing audits and engineering help for that. And some of the things that we're saying is, you know, a lot of this hasn't yet been invented. It is a greenfield. M- machine learning security has been a greenfield. AI security is really a greenfield. The current tech stack in uh, ML is is really kind of. <laughs> it, there's a culture of open source adoption by the people who are working on ML systems that they want to just grab as much free and open source software as they can. The problem is that a lot of the tools that they're grabbing and using, they were created as academic or independent tools. These were not made as critical high assurance applications and, you know, and we're trusting them with high assurance needs. And when I say high assurance, we mean like there are catastrophic consequences when things go wrong. And people are like, oh yeah, let me just grab this random thing off the internet and run it. Let me grab this pickle file. Let me grab this, whatever they're grabbing and starting. So uh, they're, they're not recognizing that these tools that they're using are often riddled with security problems. And they if they, if they think about it, they're saying, hey, our model will compensate for it. No, it won't. That's like a guitar that's tuned at the factory. It's it, it, you can't like expect that it's just going to be guaranteed forever. Indeed, and you and mentioned like, too. Oh, go ahead, John. Just real quick, it, it sort of reminds me of supply chain issues, but on a completely yeah. different level. It it really Good is. Luck with and the I think it, because the ground is shifting underneath our feet, just like with mm-hmm. just like with S bomb. And I was going to say too, you mentioned you know the Ken Thompson's paper from 1984, his lecture yeah. on reflections on trusting trust, and to tie into John's comment about S bombs, you know the yes these models are created in, in academic space, being tested, but there's a lot of emergent research on adversarial models. How yeah. do I attack the model? How do I introduce, or even how would you even be able to detect a, a, a intentional backdoor, a, an untrustworthy model, when you already have difficulties in explainability of, of ML, oh, that decision so, space? Well, yeah, and that brings us into sort of the, the second and third problem. Um, the, the short answer is... <laughs> It's it's difficult at this point because I think that the, the second problem is in response to the first one, um, people are saying let's just use the existing tools that we have out there to to determine security and and to assure security. The existing tools that are out there aren't aren't actually made for that. Like so, there there are some concepts that are the same, but the techniques and approaches need to be need to be updated. And like we we have released free and open source tools to do exactly what you're talking about. We have a tool called Privacy Raven, which which is an attack simulator um, against deep learning systems because people were not actually understanding how the like how their models could be attacked and what could be extracted from uh, from those models, even when it's anonymized, even when they think that it's safe. Let's really test it, and that hasn't been done. Um, the 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 last thing is as we audit and try to come to that, like how do we audit you? There is a real lack of uh, standards in the industry on how to, uh, what are we auditing against? What does safety actually mean in ML and AI? What does security mean in ML and AI? And surprisingly, the answer really varies. And a lot of times people are talking about this stuff called value alignment, which is really different. Um, And what they're saying is basically, we have to make sure that this application, this thing does exactly what we want it to do, which sounds great until you think about what people want things to do 
And then it becomes a real problem. That that is about you know as sexy as the Skynet conversation can ever get, <laughs> and and it's not a good conversation. Any anybody who's who's expert in the fields of machine learning or AI just kind of giggles when you say Skynet. Um, the problems I think are much more fundamental than that. And yeah, the, the, so that, the that's what our team is working on. Yeah, that that ethics discussion has to find a better terminology and a richer something richer than at the one end, as you mentioned, Skynet, uh, excellent movie by the way. But also the <laughs> other end of that is just silly trolley problems and and the, yeah. and the what if scenarios. And um, neither of them, I think, are right now particularly informative for the discussion around uh, AI and, and safety. I'm curious, you, you mentioned too, like getting to standards and something as simple for example um, we we covered the 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 threat model the the audit that um, yeah of uh, that was done against curl so mm-hmm. and, and that had some very obvious things here's talking about some some c based issues here is you know some threat models what can we start to expect or what should we be expecting to look into to how to inform these particular types of discussions for AI-specific topics? I'm, I'm really glad you said that. And Alex, uh, who wrote the the top five cloud native and and uh, Heidi, Alex was very uh, I- instrumental in the, in the curl audit. And he and Heidi have been working quite a bit on exactly that because the, the threat models need to be adjusted just a little bit to understand. I think that a lot of times the, the issue when I was talking about the tech stack that people are using for ML or AI, it, there's an assumption that, okay, well, if I built a website and it works this way, then I should build an ML application that should work that way. And suddenly you've got a bunch of, you know, stuff running in Kubernetes on AWS that's ML and it's, it's supposed to make decisions that are like really scary to make. And, and so when we think about the threat model, we have to ask a lot of foundational questions that, that we haven't had to ask before, starting with what is this thing supposed to do and what are we counting on it? What are the guarantees of security that it's supposed to be delivering? How can we tell that that it isn't doing that. This you mentioned uh, ChatGPT, the, like the the hallucination problem is a really bad problem to have if it's a mission critical, time sensitive thing. And so so how can we make threat models that can actually function in a in a world with a new lexicon, a new a new way of describing new threats that just simply haven't existed before. So that is the work of of our ML and AI team. Uh, as they as they work with all of our other practices, and also as they stand up their sort of vertical, we will we will audit your ML code kind of practice. Uh, the, these are the problems that we're wrestling with. Yeah, and I think too that maybe to to kind of tie this together, we haven't yet seen the. Uh, the inception of, of AI, in other words, using AI to do code reviews on on the code, uh, you know that self introspection. And I yes. think you know even ChatGPT says, "Don't try to use this." Um, yes, <laughs> but people still want to, right? They still want to play with toys. See what see what can be done. Yeah, they do. And I, I mean, I, I would really strongly recommend against it right now. Um, I, I don't think that the technology is ready for it. I think that, uh, like you've seen in, you know, write a note to my mother giving her a good excuse of why I didn't come to the family dinner on Thursday. If they're screwing that up, I don't want to ask them, hey, is this really scary aviation system that I want to launch? Is that safe or am I good to go? You know, it's, it's really kind of, we need to get there and build up. The only way that we're really going to get to that place, which would be a great place to be, is if we take the security and safety of these systems seriously now. And I think that what I'm watching is something that's a little bit alarming because it feels like early days of the internet. Like, wow, it's a computer. Others can talk to it. And I, let's go. And no one's actually thinking or they're, they're sort of acting as if a lot of the problems that are brand new have already been solved and they haven't. 
some of those problems to tie just to tie back to the cloud or TLS between nodes, just you know encryption. Now I think that's a little bit mixed metaphor for talking about AI, but there's still a privacy angle there and the confidentiality about model extraction and what was the what was the data this was trained on and yes. can I find the one one specific thing that is you know privacy for for me as opposed to me as an aggregated part of that group. Well, it's funny because, like, think about the conversation here. Like, uh, we started out talking about the fact that engineers, even after three years of people screaming about SBOM and dependencies, I'm telling you that the number two finding is is that even in the most mature cloud-native application development companies, they're still having challenges understanding their dependency libraries, and they're, they're, they're not actually going through that. These are the same people we would count on to make the ML stuff safe and secure. It doesn't really add up. I mean, there, there are humans involved in this, and so we, we do need uh, processes that can support safe and secure development of these really important, really exciting apps in such a way that they don't do harm. So as we come to, come to the end here, since since I'm still fortunate to be able to talk to humans in the world of podcasting and not doing harm, there's of course uh, you know the laws of robotics we could talk about, but I'd like to just simplify it down, Nick, to describing AppSec in three words. How would how would you, if if I throw that to you, how would you describe it? Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna sort of. I, I think the easiest way is guaranteeing application security. Guarantee. All right. Well, said you that. I know. I have to do the counting. Okay. That that was three. That counts. But um. So now, when when people have um. So if anybody has some some questions about their guarantee, we well, can provide your contact information later. But if they have questions about other things you've been working on, especially the 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 the, the top five uh, issues you've been finding in, in cloud or this work on AI, uh, what what would you like to draw their attention to? So there's uh, on Twitter we are at Trail of Bits. Dan Guido is uh, at D Guido, and uh, our website is trailofbits.com. We have a, a blog that's that's really quite good. Um, we also have a podcast, which is trailofbits.audio, and we're just about to uh, start production for season two, which should be out in April. We'd love to have people come and check it out. Awesome. Thank you again, Nick. This was a fun conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Also, I want to thank Akira, John, thank all of our listeners. We're going to take a quick break and return with news of the week. Imperva is the comprehensive digital security leader on a mission to help organizations protect their data and all paths to it. Only Imperva protects all digital experiences from business logic to APIs, microservices, the data layer, and from vulnerable legacy environments to cloud-first organizations. With an integrated approach combining network, application, and data security, Imperva protects companies ranging from cloud-native startups to global multinationals with hybrid infrastructure. Start a free trial today and quickly protect your web app applications at securityweekly.com slash imperva. Your organization is building and updating business-critical web applications faster than ever. And with so much pressure to move fast, you may find yourself making trade-offs between innovation and security. Now you can build fast without sacrificing security with Invicti, the zero-noise application security platform that helps your dev, sec, and ops teams work together to secure every website, web app, and API. With unparalleled accuracy, coverage, and automation, Invicti scales like no other AppSec solution. Invicti, AppSec, with zero noise. Visit securityweekly.com slash Invicti. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. We just talked with Nick Selby about cloud misconfigurations that even mature companies make. And speaking of maturity, how to talk about AI security without invoking Skynet all the time. 
I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella and Akira Brand, and it's just about time for the news. But first, one announcement. Security Weekly listeners save $100 on their RSA Conference 2023 full conference pass. RSA Conference will take place April 24th through 27th in San Francisco and virtually, aka on demand. To register with our discount code, visit securityweekly.com slash RSAC2023 and use the code 53UCYBER. We hope to see you there. And now, John and Akira, as we've been doing lately, uh, we're starting off with a question. And uh, this question comes from a listener, Paul, who says, what do you think of cores? And I believe by cores, he's talking about the uh, cross-origin resource sharing header. And uh, we have, uh, for those of you who are audio only, John's head has just exploded, not cool scanners style-wise, but just in absolute headache-wise. So we've got his answer right there, I think. Uh, would you like, care to expand on that, John, while uh, a character thinks of her response? I had happily forgotten about this question until you had to go and bring it up again. Um, yeah, this is sort of a trigger word for me. Um, okay. I, I see that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if I can summarize this quickly. So this came from uh, um, that this uh, particular listener actually sent a story along with. I don't know if you have a link for that in there or, or not, Mike. Um, no, I'll have to add that. But there was a uh, a link. So first, course, course is a as a security concept. Great idea. You know, let's let's stop um, cross site request forgeries and some other things like that. Let's allow the source app web application to have control over what the, the browser is actually going to be loading for that web page. Sounds like a great idea. Um, but for developers, man, it's, I, I tell you, and like this is the, the rant I went on before, and you guys, esteemed listeners, are getting a very short version of this. Um, uh, as a web dev, as a developer, a server-side developer, it's something that we, we get that thing written as quickly as possible, and like it looks like it works, and we move on to what we want to do. Um, it's a pain in the butt to troubleshoot. Uh, it's sometimes browser specific. Uh, little white space changes or capitalizations can make things break. Uh, so it, it th this was provided along with a uh, um, a link to a a new Go package, which is middleware to to apparently in theory make cores easier. And I'm like, I've already got it working in once, and like you know I've used it in Gorilla, which I now know is sunsetted in, in Gin in the past. And like, why would I go and learn that again? So it's it's the idea of what it provides is great, but um, I, I'm guessing I'm not the only person out there that it has a very violent reaction when they hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I was first learning how to program, I remember coming up against cores errors and just being like so dumbfounded for so long. Like, holy crap, it's such a stymying thing, right? Um, and even now, like when I come up against cores errors, just like my heart sort of sinks. Like, oh, man. I got to fix all this stuff. Um, and yeah, I understand why, why it exists, but I feel like maybe this is maybe a really big stretch. Let's find out, but it could sort of be in the same vein of like having people have to do MFA in order to protect their accounts, but the MFA itself becomes so freaking cumbersome that people just don't use it or they complain about it all the time. And it's not like a great way to actually address the problem. I think cores might be in that same vein. I'm curious what you guys think. Well, Ty, that's, I'm not sure I agree that it's in the same vein in terms of the solution. I think MFA has excellent solutions, 
but it introduces additional problems that are still desirable to have. Well, desirable to continue to solve, I should say, in, in terms of protecting accounts, being re resistant to phishing, and so on, resistance to replay. So I'm, we'll talk about FIDO and WebAuthn shortly. Got some articles for that. But to come back to cores, I think I do agree with both of you that I've come around to being less enamored of security headers, browser client-side security headers, of just saying, here's how I want to share the, re the, the, the response from a server across domains, as well as like content security policy. I think we're up to CSP level three by now, but it's sort of like, uh, does anybody really care? Should I, why should we bother? Maybe if we just, now this is going to sound glib, maybe if we just wrote the, the, the applications more secure in the first place, we wouldn't have to deal with the browser. But honestly, I say that on purpose because I'd rather focus the security boundaries and security architecture and the code itself, the server-side code, the web application code, rather than trying to bring those into the, the, the web browser itself. Because I think I didn't appreciate the, the pain that developers go through when you start to make those types of recommendations. And I have to go back and really briefly finish the rant because I remembered I hadn't even talked about serverless <laughs> yet. Um, and when you put an API gate, like at least an Amazon API gateway in front of this, you have to go back through and redo all your core stuff again. So it's it, it, it's the thing which keeps giving. And I think if I want to bring it back to MFA example, MFA is at least is like it's enter these six digits that sort of almost repeat themselves. Okay, cool. I can I can do that unless there's a site I've been grumbling about on Twitter, which is making me enter them every time. But it, I, at least in my mind, and it could be partially as a security guy, MFA doesn't bother me on a site that I think deserves security or authentication uh, validation. But if it's like MFA on, I don't know, um, uh, some cat subreddit on on Reddit, then I'd be like, okay, why do I need to enter my MFA for this? So I think there's a, a bit of a trade-off on that one. Um, and maybe that's the same thing. It's just how I think of these different things of like, why do I have to deal with this? Um, I, I, I get, I'm with you, Mike. I get the idea that um, I can imagine the mindset of, of people creating cores of like, hey, we, we've got these applications. We're never going to get them all secure. How can we help provide security by approaching this from a browser point of view? So I, 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 I get that. Um, but now I want to go back and solve it the other way. Yeah, and I've got some articles, too, that I think we'll continue this conversation on about just the developer perspective. But first, since we've been talking about MFA, Reddit, uh, they reported a breach, uh, relatively transparent, apparently, this was a good thing. I highlighted it because on the, t uh, on the, on the tail of just having a con great conversation with Adrian about security myths, uh, they repeated the trope, humans are the weakest link. And uh, they included the XKCD comic, which is, is funny, but and kind of tries to illustrate the point, but I was pointing out too that if we're if we're jumping straight to blaming humans, and especially if we're just saying humans in general, or we're not qualifying a type of human, or the human who has these tools available to them, or has these processes to support them, I don't think we're doing a very good threat model, and I think we're being a little bit defeatist. So my my uh, response here is, of course, the XKCD comet uh, has you know claim, has the joke about having a five dollar wrench to recover somebody's uh, secret passphrase to their 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 secret key, rather than having the million dollar you know um, password break set up, but you could also just have a $50 YubiKey to counter a lot of these phishing attacks as well. And um, that is also, I think, that the type of the direction of to go with MFA 
keeping in mind that we still need to address account recovery, um, especially for the in, in the consumer space. So that was the angle I wanted to take this Reddit breach in. And um, Akira, I know you were also looking at this, maybe had some questions or were maybe not quite agreeing with what I was saying, or maybe I wasn't expressing myself very well. No, no. Um, I actually just put a another article in that has a similar point to the initial one, that humans are indeed the weakest link, uh, to borrow from the excellent 2000s show. Um, I'm definitely not taking a side here. I think that you're correct, Mike, that if someone... If we're able to get spearfish and then all of a sudden, of course, all of the data is compromised and that's clearly more of an issue on threat modeling or the internal security controls. But that's definitely not to say that we shouldn't continue to educate our employees, have regular phishing um, sort of spoofs um, for people. So I don't know. It's I think it's a little bit of both. It's a little column A and it's a little bit column B. So in, in where where I'm coming from is very much in this in the spirit of like I said in this case the 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 a person who was fish reported it. So it's a good thing too that you have a security culture that is not blame oriented. And that's really what I'm reacting to strongly here because you want to encourage people to say, whoops, I accidentally clicked on this link or I responded to this email. And sorry, I forgot to pull out my IDN UTF-8 visual transpiler recorder for my brain to figure out is this an L or a Romanized I or a Cyrillic Whatever, you know, silly things that that security awareness training tries to point to rather than just say, here's a strong MFA, rather than just a TOTP, maybe it's also a a, a code matching. We've seen uh, Duo, Okta push out different ways of handling TOTP challenges that are a bit more resistant to phishing, as well as I mentioned FIDO keys. So I think where I'm just coming down is let's, let's not put blame on users Let's actually give users better tools so this process can work better. And maybe let's move on to a bunch of other articles because we have a ton. Uh, speaking of blame, I did try to resist blame on the um, uh, a write-up about hacking into Toyota's global supplier management network, which really just stood out as some really dead simple vulns that always surprised me when somebody finds these about apparently a client-side access control that was implemented in Angular. Um, and they just did some JavaScript fiddling uh, with Fiddler, so the, the Windows-based version of Burp, essentially, or equivalent. And another one was just cre- they found an API that would do create, uh, create a JOT to do user impersonation and basically then had complete control of the, 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 the system. So it's some of those things that pretty dead simple, and it ties back to the idea of having a bug bounty. The, the researcher didn't get a there, there was no bug bounty program, so they didn't get any money for this. And they said they weren't incentivized to keep poking around. And I think in this case, Toyota doesn't need to launch a bug bounty. They need to launch some basic scanning, fuzzing, security coding practices and architecture review before turning on a, a, turning on a bug bounty program and spending money on things that could be found with tools. But I think that's the best I can squeeze out of that one. Not sure if either of you can... Um, have anything interesting for that? My the thought in my head this morning when I was reading this was more focused around just reminding our listeners to be careful when you do something like this without a um, a company's permission. Um, but at the same time, I'm like I, I'm. You can hear I'm, I'm sort of wavering on that point now as I say it. I think there's 
you know, it's it's because I'm thinking of another situation where there's an app, if there's an application that you own or you've bought, like, and you start playing with that, what's the? You're on sort of edgy ground here. We've seen enough cases where companies decide that they're going to sue someone over stuff like this. Um, and you know, there, there's great ways to learn, and I think there's great things in here to say. You know, this is what you should not be doing, but just um, be thoughtful, I guess, when you when you do this type of thing. Um, that's my biggest takeaway. I mean, yeah, it, it, there, there's nothing. I, I, it, yeah, there, there's there's nothing of significance um, beside the fact that, as what Mike said, that they they need to do a little bit better job. But um, yeah, I don't know. Does that make sense to you guys? Would you would you agree with that, or am I being too sensitive? No, I think you're right. Like I know that in some places, that if you point a DAS tool or a feather or whatever at a at a website that you don't have written permission to, that's technically illegal, and they can take legal action against you. Um, and on the other hand, like maybe it's more of a, a takeaway of, look, if I don't put a fuzzer or a DAST, if I don't scan my app with a DAST, then someone else will, and they can find all these little hanging fruits. So it's just a reminder to use the tools that you have. And I mean, we cover articles like this a lot, so it's not like this is the one I'm not trying to point these guys out. It's just a thought that popped in my head when I was reading this. It felt very, um, I mean, he said himself, like, he was bored, so he decided to go poke around, poke around some large corporate networks. <laughs> that That's, yeah, I don't know. As one does. Yes, yes there's always the... Uh, this, the ins and outs of CFAA and um, what, what, what you start to violate the law or just what becomes perhaps less ethical to, is a callback from our discussion with AI in that area. Is, the, the, those are areas that would also be great to bring in, in lawyers to talk about because there can be uh, one of the things you just want to avoid, even if it is perfectly legal to start scanning, if you start to, you don't want to have to respond to a lawyer if you're not a lawyer yourself. And that could be your time and your expense. And especially if you start to go beyond what you've been authorized to do, whether bug bounty or within just, you woke up this morning and wanted to poke poke the bear and the bear just happens to be a big org. Mm-hmm. Uh, but speaking of poking lots of things, uh, John, you had mentioned, for example, um, in, in the you alluded to an article about the crazy amounts of APIs that cloud yes. providers have. Now, I don't know that we have any specific phones in them yet, but this is from Wiz, who are known for finding flaws. So uh, tell us more, just how crazy are these APIs out there? Yeah, so this is from, um, it, it's a, a short but pretty good read, Wiz's um, 2023 State of the Cloud. Sorry, guys, it, it's a registration to get the download. Um, but it, it's a, you know, it's not, it's not, it's pretty short and it got some interesting stuff in it. Um, but yeah, so two, two things hit me. And I think I might have heard about this from, um, oh, it was in someone else's newsletter last week. So um, I can't remember if it was in Clint's. I think it was. But anyways, um, first is a graph, uh, well, graph and stats around uh, AWS. Uh, they're adding approximately 40 new services and 1,600 API actions per year for the last six years. So the total number of API actions they have is now around somewhere between 12,000 and 13,000. So the reason, I, I, well, let me bring the second spot in, and I'll, I'll talk about why I got these. And they got these stats from uh, Bodocore, and there's another, they're, there's, they're gathering the stats from uh, um um, GitHub projects, IAM dataset. The second set of stats was for those APIs. Um, all the uh, public cloud providers have some amount of privileges, right? That you're able to grant or revoke 
um, to to access those APIs for different roles and different users. Um, so as those APIs, you can imagine as the number of APIs increases, so does the permissions around them. Uh, as of December, um, Amazon is up around, God, my eyes feel like they're deceiving me, uh, 16,000 uh, permissions. Uh, Azure, oh, wait, 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 sorry. Azure was at 16,000. Uh, Amazon is around 13,000. And then Google is down around 7,000 potential um, API permissions. And the reason I brought these two things up um, is, and, and this feels like it's a, a, a advertisement for a tool, but I don't think Wiz makes that tool. I know this tool exists out there, but how do you control those? How do you keep track of those permissions yourself? How do you know, you know, the, there's the world of Amazon's uh, IAM, Helen. I know the other guys have it too, but how do you actually figure out the right permissions that aren't over permissive as well as just what have you granted out there to all your users? Um, I mean, we were talking last segment about um, what does the cloud provider, let's pick on Google for a change. What does Google consider secure versus me as an application owner? Um, and and that's, that's, that's talking about cloud and application. We haven't even talked about permissions, right? Which is sort of cloud, but um, it, it's a pretty deep thing. So I just thought that it's worth people's thinking about it for probably about as long as I've been talking on it now. But um, yeah, that, that was my point of bringing it in there. Yeah, you're going to be... What, what, I'm trying to think of some good words here. Just covered, smothered, destroyed underneath that that pile of permissions. That 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 complexity. Try to keep it straight, and uh, it's it's one of those things that points out to. It's really hard to have default secure configurations when there's so many microservices you have to interact with. And even if you're just you know you're talking about go back to cores, API gateway, and a couple of serverless, you know, a couple of lambda functions, that might seem at start. To be pretty reasonable, but then they start to need different access to different data stores. Some are read should be read only. Some maybe just need write. You need to get your logging in there, but you definitely then don't want to turn your logging access systems or your incident response systems to be the the, the weakest link um, because they're they're over permissioned and, and under protected. So it's scary and. Um, Good luck. We, we, good luck. While you fix that, we're going to move on to the next article because I have no nothing better I could add to there uh, than my heartfelt sympathy. And so perhaps not so much cloud related. We're going to come back to some, some that developer perspective in a second. But real quick, I did want I'd mentioned a while ago, Portswigger and crew had put together voting for their ten favorite web hacking techniques of 2022, and I think this ties into an article you also had, Akira, about uh, an open open letter to OWASP. Board. And the reason I'm bringing these two together is just Portswigger has done great community building, great awareness of not and not a top ten in terms of generic. This is this is injection attacks. This is you know misconfigurations, logging and monitoring, but desync, um, the the dirty dancing in sign off sign in OAuth flows, which we covered because I had to get the uh, Patrick Swayze reference in there. And uh, there's also client side path traversal. That's one of these techniques. And these are all really great, very specific learning techniques to read through. So I encourage our listeners to to look at it from that perspective, from education. But I think there's also that type of very direct contribution to education, to moving the techniques forward, or at least highlighting techniques that perhaps OWASP could benefit from. And Akira, tell us a bit more about this article that you found. Yeah, so I found an open letter to the OWASP board called OWASP Needs to Evolve, 
Um, it was signed by several people that have, well, more than several, quite a few people that are key contributors onto OWASP tools and um, are just really uh, key members of the OWASP community. Long story short, what the letter essentially puts forth is that there is a gap and the gap is what the projects and the community around them want and the support that OWASP provides. So it's sort of saying like, hey, you know, the world of um, creating software has evolved quite a lot since OWASP started about uh, 20 years ago. So is the internet. But it seems that OWASP is sort of sort of stuck in this place where it's not evolving with the time. So when you see things like these top tab web hacking techniques of 2023 coming, uh, sorry, 2022, coming from communities like Portswigger, that's essentially what these people are saying in this letter is like, hey, if we don't evolve, people are going to go to other resources. And quite frankly, we're going to go to other resources. So in this letter, there's um, there's five key points that they that they put forth. I won't list all of them right now, but um, definitely take a look at that to see kind of what the main takeaways are that these people want OWASP to like actually concretely shift. Yeah, and John and I talked about um, a letter from Mark Curfee that was similar to this when he was running for the board. And some of the things that stand out to me is look at what the Open Open SSF has done lately with very specific, deliberate investment in supporting the ecosystem of open source security. Say, we're going to find out what are some critical areas, we're going to apply some fuzzing, apply some threat modeling. Now, they were doing this very much from a developer perspective about how to improve the security of this. I think what this is pointing out is OWASP has some tools, but it also has a massive amount of tools and projects that some may not be more relevant now. Um, so maybe we should, we as speaking of OWASP, OWASP should reorient and reinvest where are their flagship projects, invest, curate them to keep them relevant, keep them applicable for security testing so that they're, they are easily adoptable, easily used, more easily used by developers. And I think that's a lot of what this is speaking to. So and in creating a uh, creating explicit support both in funding, always important, as well as focus um, from from OWASP. I think there's um, it's sort of interesting from a standing of the shoulders of giants point of view, right? We've we've got some of these older foundations um, that have done amazing things, which have um, you know, the, the original people who founded them and have been lifting and driving them for the last decades um, are either starting to move on or they're not changing in their, their mannerisms and their ways and their ways of thinking. Um, and then you've got the Linux Foundation, um, which seems to be doing, a, at least right now for the last, what, three, five years, a extremely good job at this. Um, and I think that's partially pointing out to some of the Partially pointing out how good some of the other orgs could be, like you just mentioned with OpenSSF, which is Linux versus OWASP. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, the, the reason I'm mentioning is I'm seeing in some other communities too, and I'm, I'm not trying not to point names and point fingers and names here, but it it's it shows that like building a community is is one of the toughest things you can do. It's ongoing, never ending. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for to to really sort of nurture that community and, and keep it growing and keep it expanding and how it. Uh, both relates to the world around it, as well as the effect that it has on that world. So, um, 
as we said, I think when we looked at Mark's letter before, I, I hope they're able to change and improve, that those number figures seemed awfully high to me, five to eight million. But um, I, I can't say I've run the number, so I don't know. Um, but I, I hope that they respond. It's not like they did, because he got on the board, didn't he? So hopefully they're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm, indeed. Yeah, and we'll we'll continue to follow that. And um, also, what's what's always great is to have criticism and followed by recommendations, suggestions. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that this letter does model. They're not just saying things are horrible. Here's some very concrete suggestions that we think would be beneficial that we're looking for. So that's always a great thing to see in this type of letter. And I want to bring that into a group of articles that are shifting the perspective to. Developers. Now, I'm going to lead into this with um, actually an article from NIST. They had just announced the finalists for their cryptographic algorithms in tiny IoT devices. Basically, you know, low low profile for computing, memory, CPU, etc. And there's ten or so of these algorithms, and pretty much all of them have you know they they have to have a reference implementation of software. All of them are in C. One of them actually had a reference in Rust um, and in Java and Python. But pretty much, if we're trying to get away from a world where everything is in C, it would also be great to have reference implementations that aren't in C. Um, I will acknowledge up front, begrudgingly perhaps, that IoT environments are lower. You know, they they have more restrictions, and I don't think you really want to run Python on a Raspberry Pi efficiently oh, if you're. You could. In terms so, of CPU usage, but who knows? So that that was actually the point which caught my interest in this is, so there's both, a, a Raspberry Pi nowadays is a pretty powerful thing. People are using it for their desktops. But if you think about a real Absolutely. IoT device, like a, uh, an 8266 or ESP32, or maybe a lower power one still, most of these things still have ARM cores in them. So they're go- I mean, you can get CircuitPython, which can run on the smallest of things. So... I'm, I'm not I'm not positive. I want to go read more. I'm not positive what chipsets they're focusing on with this. But my first question is, do we need new low-power algorithms? Because that means probably mm-hmm. going, to, going to be easier to crack. Um, you know, maybe you're not going to have as much sensitive information on those low-end things. But that that, that was the the first head-scratcher for me. I, I, th- I really like your point, though, about the Rust part. I think that, that's, that seems like a no-brainer in 2023 to me. At least go. And, and it felt... Yeah, and it, and it felt the, the the rust part too was I, I had another article about OpenSSL uh, vulnerability, and um, again, I don't think it was too interesting other than it gave me a chance to mention a Rust TLS uh, alternative that you can't drop in though. So this is just a different group working on a Rust TLS for their ecosystem, but we're possibly going to start seeing just this bifurcation of legacy existing systems sticking with OpenSSL. OpenSSL 3.0 is addressing some architecture problems, some cross but it still has some some history to it. A lot of people have moved off it, as well as a lot of people have moved off, um, or I should say a lot of people. One particular example I pro- here was a group that was moving off of about one million lines of code to another million lines of code. And this is from the uh, real-world engineering challenges, from the, the practical programmer. And it was a discussion from... Uh, conversation with the from, sorry the pragmatic engineer about um, I just lost my, my my train of thought there the the large Breaking was the, the group Khan Academy yeah. Yes, getting rid of the monolith of Python, about a million lines of Python, split them into about 40 microservices, mostly in Go, 
And it ended up being pretty much the same amount of lines of code, and it took about three and a half years. But this was really interesting because it doesn't have a, I think to me at least, hopefully other people think so, it doesn't have a very specific application security angle to it other than Python 2 was going to be end of life and they're trying to figure out what to do next. But it's a very, I thought, insightful review of how do you just you know go from one code base to another? How do you go from the million lines of code you need to figure out how to do cores in testing, staging, and environment so cores actually works into a different set of cores? And um, Akira, I know you've been diving into some, you know, you're, you're, you're a programmer. Um, I'm not sure how much of this felt uh, familiar to you or scary to you or just a million, if you've reached your own million lines of code yet in your career. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. That'd be so cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Honestly, this felt a little scary to me because I remember learning about OpenSSL with like the heart bleed bug. Um, and it's still a little bit of a mystery to me how all this stuff works. So to be totally honest, this one, I got a little bit lost in this one. No, no worries. And I think that's, that's a good thing to point out because some of the things of getting lost is I wanted to bring in this conversation about this pragmatic engineer. And John, you had one about uh, an article about two cultures of programming Mm -hmm. in the idea of where do security folks get lost or or lose the the the, the thread in when talking about how software is really developed in or in so that appsec can actually make better recommendations rather than just say you should use cores because it's on this list or you should use rust just because it's memory safe maybe we should actually have a better appreciation of why or explaining why and how we're making those recommendations yeah and that that's why i refer to um our little bubble you know that we're we're sort of pulling a carriage or a bubble here, but like this is our little tiny world of AppSec where like we 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 think about things in a very specific way. I mean, the audacity for me to say that um, <laughs> NIST sh- should be in 2023 providing examples in Rust, that's a pretty egotistical statement. Let's be honest, I'm aware of it. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it's, I, I think Akira's response is, is, I mean, it's a response I've seen from God knows many customers when, you know, both of us were over in that space is, you give them a scan report, they're like, what do I do with this? Obviously upgrade, but it's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, can I upgrade or what do I upgrade to? And what do you do with this? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll be a little cognizant of OPSEC, so I'm not going to say which one, but I'm running a new router here. And in one of their recent firmware updates, they moved from one of the competitors of OpenSSL back to OpenSSL. And I believe that one is, I can't remember which one, it's one of the ones out there, it's LibreSSL, I think, but it's, even between which one of these do you use and then what version do you use? How do you keep it up to date? There's a vulnerability. Is anyone actually going to break into that vulnerability or is this just like the nerds talking again? Um, <laughs> it's super complex stuff, man. Um, you know, I, I, we've, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. <laughs> how about course? <laughs> and honestly, <laughs> how about them course? Um, from my hot take too, like, I think that a lot of, Mm, how do I say this? A lot of people that are learning how to program now are kind of like this type two programmer where it's like, you know, it's higher level. Um, there's a lot more open source. It's a lot more dependencies. Um, it's Python, it's Ruby, it's JavaScript. It's not like these very lower level languages like C. Um, and so to try to explain AppSec, like you said, John, like sometimes it's just like quote unquote, the nerds talking 
And we also have this newer generation of apps like people like myself that are relatively new to the industry in general. And like, we want to learn from the AppSec gods, you know, it's one of the reasons that I'm here is so I can learn from the two of you and all of these guests, but it can seem like, whoa, this has no actual bearing on the code I just wrote in Python that like displayed, you know, like it called the database and showed a thing on a screen and, you know, whatever it is, right? Like relatively, like very, like very simple CRUD applications, right? Like how are you going to start to explain AppSec to people where like this might be their only experiences these higher level languages and that i don't know i have no idea so um real quick what akira was talking about and what what mike tried to segue over to me was um the second article there that we were talking about um two cultures of programming why both are important and and this is again not appsec related directly but uh it talks through there's these two cultures and one is sort of um they've got a graphic at the top like a cartoon and culture one is like you know they're going to put a little more time into um, making the code faster or better, or or like they're they're sort of thinking about a, a bigger picture, but um, not from an architectural point of view, but like they're a little more purist. Let's let's say it that way. And then culture two is we want to get print. We want to print something print something on the screen in Python without having like you know initiate Java classes and do all this other stuff and all this sort of quote unquote junk around it. And then the article goes through, talks about like, you know, compares those two cultures. Um, one values big projects, the other values short, meaningful code snippets. Um, my favorite one down here was one values code speed, the other values coding speed, which comes back to what Akira was sort of talking about there. And that that's sort of, you know, the neck of where we are. Um, and I think the big struggle we have in AppSec at the end of the day is, it'd be interesting to see, I'm betting, my guess is we don't have as much struggle um, securing and talking about application security with that type one group with the option one, as we do with the second folks are like, dude, I just want to print. Um, but yeah, so that, that was the, 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 I want to give a little bit of back explanation to people who are wondering exactly what we started talking about. What I'll also say to that is that from my experience, this is just my lived experience. I don't have like data to back this up. But a lot of my colleagues are coming from coding boot camps and coding boot camps don't necessarily teach you culture one. They usually teach you culture two. Um, whereas college courses will teach you more culture one, but less and less people are going to college um, in, in general, but also for computer science. So we're going to have to figure out how to get culture two involved in AppSec sooner or later, because that may be what's mainly on the market. So something to think about there too. Well, I think it comes back to the default secure by default. If if something is, mm -hmm. I think secure by default is more is more necessary to succeed with culture too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that especially in the modern world, to bring in the, the tooling and the support for what helps you either be secure by default or point out your your, your problems is that especially in the world of C and C plus plus compilers. I think if you're trying to outsmart the compiler, you're probably not going to. Uh, modern compilers, you know, there there can be fun code patterns that maybe it used to work about how to zero a value most efficiently. But if you're worrying about zeroing values most efficiently rather than just everything should be zero initialized because that mm -hmm. helps prevent certain types of integer overflows, certain types of memory overflows, uh, buffer overflows. 
maybe we should just be relying on the tools and not thinking that we're so smart about this one this one weird trick to to make something zero. And that's why I like the culture too. And maybe thinking aloud here, trying to tie this back to also like where's the where directionally would OWASP be going? Should be going? Where are the tools mm-hmm. to either point to rather than yet another hardening guide or a top ten list? Here is the default secure version, or here are the recommended libraries to pull things together so that you can print securely, log securely, uh, work with cores securely, et cetera. Um, so so that, that's what comes to mind when I, when I was looking at that too, as you, the two of you were talking. Hmm. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's really interesting. There was another one down there. there the, even just reading the, the, the pull quotes in this article sort of give you the sense of what's going on um, around testing. Culture one, it can, be rigorously, it can be rigorously mathematically proven that the code doesn't contain errors of a certain type. Versus culture two is there's statistical evidence that the code almost always behaves as expected. Um, and that comes back again, like, you know, think about, hey, many times we do like static analysis on code and like, we're like, this line, you didn't initialize your, as you just said, and it's like, yeah, it, it's, well, it's not talking about AppSec, it sort of is in many ways. Um, but I think the, 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 my goal in life is at least is how do I both get to that culture two and how do I help secure them? So as we think in culture two, there's a couple a couple other articles we'll just try to end off here with a, a few random bugs that maybe come out of culture one or culture two. Or speaking of culture, um, maybe there's a culture three around Twitter. Uh, <laughs> and you can't delete your Twitter DMs, however, though. Uh, Kira, this looks like something that should probably be mentioned. Yeah, you know, I actually I had a friend of mine um, hit me up once and she goes, Hey, can you hack Twitter? I go, no, I cannot hack Twitter. Why? Why do you want me to hack Twitter? She goes, well, I said some things in the DM that I really regret saying, and I wish I could get it, get rid of it. And that had me, that, that story came to mind when I saw this article across my desk, which is, um, if you want to delete your Twitter DMs, well, good luck. Um, the reason this is a problem, well, first off, let me say it this way. People are trying to delete their Twitter DMs, but it's not necessarily getting deleted off of Twitter servers. So this is a problem, first off, because your data isn't being handled in a way that is judicious. Second off, it's an issue because the DMs you send to friends um, are not end-to-end encrypted. So if Twitter suffers a data breach, uh, your conversations could potentially be accessible um, or if there was uh, staffers that had the right permissions to access them, they'd be able to be read. Um, there had been some uh, requests for comments from Twitter's communications department. But according to this article, the communications department doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so that is uh, a little messy. Um, right now, people are also thinking that according to the GDPR data laws in Europe, that might be a way to force Twitter's hand to absolutely for sure get rid of DMs on their servers, but it's still kind of up in the air. It's remaining to be seen. So long story short, don't say anything on the internet that you'd regret, even if it's in a private DM, because private DMs are not necessarily private. People can still see them if they have the correct permissions or if there is a data breach. 
Yeah, that, that I think to me speaks to the idea of threat modeling or helping your friends threat modeling privacy issues. Uh, you mentioned whether or not even the communications are end-to-end encrypted, as well as end-to-end encryption is not necessarily a magic incantation against other types of threats too, especially if you can't trust the other end of the party um, or the the device that they are encrypted upon. Uh, as And then, of course, I think the only thing I, other out that I'll add there is I don't know that Twitter is necessarily motivated by regulatory action, so I'm not sure. Um, I would put too much confidence in GDPR action, but we'll see. Um, John, not sure if you have any more ideas on there. If you want, maybe take us out on just a uh, article you had on named pipes in Docker, just to sort of bring us around to other vulnerabilities that, that catching your eye. Yes. Sorry, I was going back through my DMs on Twitter and going, is there anything here that I want to not have at least? <laughs> I think I'm in the clear. I don't, I don't mind. Uh, people can go ahead. Um, yeah, so let's see. Uh, there was a few more, as folks know, we usually have a few more articles than we're able to cover through here in the time. But um, CyberArk uh, has a really interesting blog post, at least to me, on um, breaking Docker named pipes systematically. Um, so Docker, most of us think of as Docker for Linux, or is Docker for Linux. Let's try this again. Docker for Linux is what most of us people think of when we think about Docker. Docker also has um, support for Windows and Windows containers. So uh, uh, author here decided to um, spin that bad boy up and start poking around and seeing what this thing can do. Um, and as I talk through this, I'm, I'm reminded of our earlier conversation about is it okay to go and scan a website? So we're coming back to I, I'm not not aware of that. Let's leave it that, at that. But on his machine, he's running Docker, uh, looking at the Docker service. He sees that hey, there's a ton of named pipes being created. And this blog post sort of walks him walks through as he does this and like you know looks both between the um, Docker source code and sort of sees what's going on in there. Um, looks at these named pipes in the system. He actually wrote a little utility to list out those named pipes. Uh, he ends up finding an undocumented API. Uh, keeps going and going, and next thing he knows, he's figured out a way to write through to his um, host um, file system on Docker for Windows, which means at that point, if you're able to, if, if you're writing, you're probably going to be writing with an administrative user. He manages to figure out how to actually modify their files so that it then be executed, which means he's able to basically create like malware, right? Um, but what's interesting, at least what really caught my attention about this is the, the thought that they gave at the end, because usually what he was saying is for him, the, the first way that he'd figure out how to do this for that program to be executed, he'd have to reboot the machine, like a startup program, right? And if we're trying to weaponize something to get someone to execute it, at least in modern day, you know, Windows is finally sort of stable. We're not, well, we still joke about rebooting. It's not something you want to do all the time. And if your machine just reboots by itself, it could be like, what just happened? So um, he talks through about, oh, well, how do I trigger this exploit without restarting the machine, which I thought was sort of interesting. But, um, you know, for folks who aren't familiar with Docker on Windows, maybe go grab a, a Windows container and play with that. Uh, or, you know, take a look through how, how these guys looked at, you know, using these named pipes. And this has been around for, what, two, three years, I believe. Um, so I'm surprised someone didn't come up with this earlier, but pretty good read. Pretty good read, and uh, what happened or what just happened might be a good candidate for your uh, T-shirt list uh, there, John. We have to resurrect that this year. (laughs) 
Uh, with that, I think we're out of time. So we do need to say thank you to John. Thank you to Akira. Thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, please do subscribe. Hit that like button. Check out the show notes. And uh, speaking of Valentine's Day, and if you're watching, uh, and if you're a fan of Michael Keaton as Batman, Susie and the Banshees are, are touring again. So check out Face to Face from the movie Batman Returns, and of co- as well, of course, Kiss Them For Me. Great songs, as well as great, great deep list of albums from them all. Uh, we'll see you next time on Application Security Weekly.